A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people came to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make, and I make, them, known, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. 
You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them, make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every matter they, bring, they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of, out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Thank you, Tim. My name is Dan, and as part of the elder team, Rich and I have been filling in for Pastor Adam for the past few weeks as he's on vacation. In our current series on Exodus, we've looked at how God has called Moses and how, how Moses has miraculously delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through ten plagues through the parting of the sea, and through the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Last week, we recounted God's constant provision of food and water for his grumbling people through the desert. In our passage today, the people of Israel faced a military battle that they could not win by their own effort. And Moses was burdened with daily responsibility that was too much even for Moses. What does God expect from us when the problems we face are too big for us, the foes too great, or the workload too heavy? What can we do? What should we do? And what can we expect from God today by way of help? Should we stand back, pray, and wait for God to act? Should we charge forward courageously in faith? When should we seek counsel from others? And is there someone today who's facing a tough challenge who might welcome our help or advice? Asking these questions, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts and our minds through the truth of your word this morning. May your spirit give us understanding, discernment, and willing hearts. May your word take hold in our lives and accomplish all that you intend for it to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might remember in Exodus 13:17 that it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the land, by the way of the land of the Philistines, uh, although that was near. 
For God said, let the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The Israelites were not skilled, confident, or ready for war. Until now, God had fought their battles for them. God defeated Pharaoh's army. The only thing the Israelites did was watch. God didn't need their help to win the victory. But just a few months into their 40-year journey toward the eventual arrival in the Promised Land, God called them to join in the fight. Why did God allow the Amalekites to attack? God certainly could have prevented it. Why did God require that the Israelites fight this time instead of just watching? It's clear that God chooses to do what he wants to do and when he wants to do it. Sometimes God calls for swords. Sometimes God calls for a marching band. Just wait and see. You never know quite what God might do. But we do know that we can trust God to deliver his people. God hears and answers our prayers. We know in context that the path to the promised land would require many battles for the Israelites. God would require their faith and obedience. God was teaching Israel that he was their all-powerful God who could protect his people from all great perils, from pestilence and disease, as with the plagues of Egypt, from famine, like he provided food and water in the desert. And God could also protect them from the peril of the sword, including military forces that might boast superior strength, skill, and size. In many ways, God was testing Israel and helping them to grow in faith and to depend on him daily in all circumstances. Learning to trust in God alone was a lesson they had to learn over and over again. Sound familiar? We do too. We are weak, but he is strong. Does that sound like a song? I sang that quite often to my little children growing up. The Amalekites were descendants of one of the grandsons of Esau. You may remember the rivalry between Jacob and Esau and how Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from his older brother. God's covenant promise thus came by God's design to Israel and not to Esau's descendants. Now, the brothers Jacob and Esau did eventually reconcile in Genesis 33, but the Amalekites became a permanent enemy of Israel. The first attack of the Amalekites on Israel was unprovoked and ruthless. We read in Deuteronomy 25, 17-18, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Amalek did not fear God, it says. Last week we read in response to God's great miracles in Exodus 15, 14-16, The people have heard. They tremble. Terror and dread fall upon them. But not Amalek. Amalek decided to take a shot at God's people. The Amalekites mercilessly attacked 
vulnerable Israelite stragglers like a pack of wolves. Moses responded by calling on Joshua to assemble a makeshift army for Israel. Moses did not lead or choose the army himself. Moses got help. He chose Joshua. Moses trusted Joshua. And we know from what followed that Joshua was a capable, trustworthy man and a man of great faith. This was a formative moment for Joshua, the man who 40 years later would receive the mantle of leadership from Moses. Perhaps Moses chose Joshua for his character and courage. Perhaps Moses considered that Moses himself was not called or gifted for military leadership. Perhaps Moses, at 80 years old, decided that a younger leader like Joshua was better suited to lead the military. Whatever the other factors may be, I have no doubt that Moses' choice of Joshua was a matter of prayer. Unlike Moses, Joshua did not seem to be reluctant to take on his new role. Joshua quickly assembled the new army and led them into battle with the Amalekites. At the same time, Moses got some more help for his own part. Moses brought Aaron, his brother, and her, who may have been his brother-in-law, with him, and they went up a nearby hill. Moses stood where he could see the battle and where the Israelites could see Moses. Now, why do you suppose Moses held that staff up? We know that the staff had been used by God as an instrument to perform many miracles. This was no magic wand. God performed the miracles, not the staff. The staff was merely an instrument that God used in many cases, just as Moses was God's instrument of choice. Why did Moses hold up the staff with two hands? Well, commentators tell us that Moses' hands raised reflected a a posture of prayer and intercession. Moses was their priest. Moses sought God's favor and power to deliver the victory. But why did it take all day? Couldn't it have been quicker and easier? Certainly. And why did Moses get tired? Well, you try holding up a staff all day when you're 80. What I really mean to say is that God could have sped things up or given Moses the strength to endure on his own. But God didn't do it that way. Instead, God gave Moses some helpers. God provided Aaron and her to physically assist Moses, just as Aaron regularly assisted Moses with speaking to the people. God determined that this battle would take all day. God could have wiped out Amalek in the blink of an eye, but God wanted the Israelite soldiers to do their part, and God wanted Moses to stand on a hill and depend on his two friends, Aaron and her, to help him through an exhausting day. Now, there's a few things that came to mind as I studied this passage. As I pictured Moses up on the hill with hands raised and a man on either side securing salvation for God's people, I thought of another man on another hill, Calvary, the one who is our high priest and our perfect intercessor, whose hands were lifted 
and nailed to the cross between two other men and who secured for us eternal salvation for God's people, for us. Israel's victory that day with Amalek was temporary, but the victory Christ won on the cross is for eternity. Jesus' victory and salvation are available to all who believe in him. Like Moses, Joshua, too, gives us another model of Jesus as our all-victorious conqueror who's defeated death and sin and evil and anything that stands against God. Joshua and Jesus are the same name in different languages. The name Joshua means he delivers or he saves. And Joshua did deliver Israel. But both Moses and Joshua were men of limited strength and ability who eventually died. Jesus is our all-powerful, perfect priest, prophet, and champion who forever reigns and intercedes for us. The roles of Moses and Joshua point to the ultimate deliverance that has now been revealed and offered to us in Jesus. Another thought that came to mind reading this passage is that scene in Lord of the Rings where Sam wants to help Frodo with the burden of carrying the ring up Mount Doom. But it's not Sam's place to carry the ring. So instead, Sam carries Frodo. Why didn't Aaron and her hold up the staff when Moses got tired? Maybe they saw the movie. (laughs) Perhaps they understood that the role of intercession and carrying God's banner, that is the staff, was a charge that God had given only to Moses. And so they did the next best thing. It was not Aaron and her's place to hold up the staff. So they held up Moses. During the battle that day, when Moses raised his hands with the staff, Israel prevailed. When Moses grew tired and lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. I suppose the hands-down losing scenario revealed what Israel was capable of on their own strength. The newly formed Israelite army was inferior to the Amalekites. The hands-up winning scenario was when God intervened for the Israelites beyond their own strength and ability. This situation reminds me of those signs people used to tell a studio audience when to applaud, when to stop, when to laugh, when to stop, or when the choir director or the song leader directs those singing to rise or to be seated. Hands up. Hands down. Win the battle. Lose the battle. It sounds utterly ridiculous. Moses didn't control the battle. The staff in Moses' hand didn't control the battle. The Israelites didn't control this battle. And the Amalekites didn't control this battle. Only God controlled the outcome of the battle. And God uses what strikes me as kind of a hilarious hands-up, hands-down signal to show how trivial it was for God to completely change the course and the outcome of the battle. Hands-up, Hands down. Win the battle. Lose the battle. It was clearly effortless on God's part to secure this victory. The victory was so obviously God's doing that no one could seriously take credit for the outcome except for God. They were weak, but he is strong. And yet, 
God called for their active participation. In the end, when Israel won the battle, God promised that he would blot out the memory of Amalek and that God would wage war against Amalek for generations. Many years later, Saul and David carried through on God's promise to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites ultimately ceased to exist as a people because of their perpetual hostility against God and against Israel. As a side note, in the book of Esther, Haman, who plotted against the Jews, was described as an Agagite, and Agag was the name of the king of the Amalekites. While it's not clear, some suggest that Haman's genocidal plot against the Jews in Esther's time may have been rooted in centuries of ancestral Amalekite hatred and warfare against Israel. It did not end well for Haman either. In chapter 18 of Exodus, we transition from foreign affairs to domestic affairs. As news of God's miracles and deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt spread, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, also heard the reports. You may recall that Jethro, a priest, was also a descendant of Abraham, but not of Isaac and Jacob. So Jethro would be familiar with the God of Abraham. Jethro visited Moses and reunited Moses with Moses' wife and children. Jethro rightly joined Moses in giving God all the credit for their miraculous events of their deliverance. The focus was on the Lord, not on Moses. Moses told Jethro what the Lord had done. Jethro, uh, what the Lord did to Pharaoh and what the Lord, how the Lord delivered them in verse 8 of chapter 18. Jethro rejoiced in the Lord's goodness and deliverance in verse 9. Jethro blessed the Lord in verse 10. Jethro confessed the Lord as the God above all gods and that the Lord had humbled Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, it says in verse 11. And then Jethro offered sacrifices to God in verse 12. There's a repeated emphasis five times in this passage on the Lord's role as the deliverer of his people. As the Lord delivered his people with signs and wonders, the Lord was making the Lord's own reputation great, and the Lord's name became known among the nations. The miracles themselves were not the important thing, but the miracles pointed to the Lord and confirmed that the God of Israel was the real deal. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 14:11. He said, Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. The miracles, the works themselves, confirmed who Jesus is and who the Lord is, and that he is the only true God. What's more, Jesus went on to say in John 14:12 and 13, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It was not about the miracles. It was about pointing to the one true God and bringing glory to his name. God delivered the people of Israel, and he still delivers those who believe in Jesus today. And it's all for his glory. Moses and Jethro understood that the attention and glory belonged to the Lord. When Jethro visited Moses, Jethro observed Moses going about his daily work routine. Moses spent his days from morning to evening hearing and resolving disputes among the people. Why was Moses judging the people? 
as the Israelites once said in Egypt, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Well, in Acts 7.35, Stephen said that this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God sent Moses to be both ruler and redeemer of Israel. Although God planned a perfect ruler and redeemer for us all to come later, whose name was Jesus. Jesus, likewise, was the stone rejected who became the cornerstone. Jesus is ultimately the only truly righteous judge, the one with all authority and all wisdom. But why did God's people have so many quarrels and conflicts to keep Moses so busy? Why couldn't God's people just get along with each other? A little humility, a little forgiveness, a little grace here and there. Is that too much to ask? Perhaps. They might argue that they didn't have God's written law before them, as we do now. The written law came a little later. Moses was developing case law as God gave him the authority and guidance that he needed. Each decision could serve as a legal precedent. And Moses would teach the people these laws and statutes as God God revealed them to Moses. Jethro observed that Moses' current approach was a bad arrangement for everyone, exhausting for Moses and tedious for the people. Moses' job was too much for one person. And can you imagine the line and the wait time? Nobody wants that. Jethro told Moses that Moses needed to recruit some help and start delegating responsibility. Sharing the load would be good. And the result, Jethro said, was that Moses would endure, not wear himself out, and that the people would be at peace or satisfied with efficient justice. Sounds good. And Moses agreed. Since Jethro had just reunited Moses' family with him, Jethro may also have considered that Moses needed to tame his workload to allow appropriate time for his own family. Well, why hadn't Moses delegated his caseload before? Maybe he enjoyed the work. Maybe he never considered that there was another option besides trying to do everything by himself. Yes, Moses was God's appointed ruler, but God never told Moses to govern all by himself. Jethro's advice came as a wake-up call before things got out of hand. And Moses wisely agreed to implement Jethro's proposal. Unlike Joshua and the military, Moses did not delegate responsibility for choosing the judges. It says that Moses himself chose the judges. It doesn't say that Moses took volunteers. There were some essential character qualifications for judges. Judges had not only to be capable, but God-fearing and honest. Moses appointed judges to take responsibility over groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Presumably, those different numbers represented a system of appeals or perhaps cases of a different type or complexity that were handled at a higher level. When I looked it up in our country, we have one judge to serve anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 people. But those are full-time judges. 
Moses appointed judges for thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That's a lot of judges. So what had been a full-time caseload for Moses could easily have become just a few hours each week for those appointed judges, not such a burdensome time commitment. Problem solved, burden lifted. Now, when Kevin's goat chewed a hole in Brian's beautiful new tent, hypothetically, and they couldn't manage to work it out, they wouldn't have to go all the way across camp to wait in line all day for Moses. They could just visit the local neighborhood judge, who I'm sure could figure out what to do about Kevin's unruly goat. Tough cases could still be passed up the chain to Moses. It was important that Moses exercised discernment in what he delegated and in what responsibilities he retained personally as God's appointed ruler of Israel. In the area of justice, Moses retained the sole authority to teach God's laws and to inquire of God concerning the most difficult situations. But with a carefully chosen judicial team, God and his laws would be more effectively guiding the people. A win-win situation. The same sort of distribution of responsibility would come later to the priesthood and the temple service, with many hands making for lighter work. In the first part of today's message, Moses delegated to Joshua when he needed help with military leadership. But Moses did not delegate his God-given authority as intercessor and staff bearer. No one besides Moses was appointed by God to speak to God or for God. Moses continued to personally intercede for God's supernatural help and intervention. Who, like Jethro, helps you to reflect on how you're spending your time and energy. Who do you trust to give you good advice? Is there someone whose advice you might need to seek out? And will you listen and discern whether God might have you act on that advice? This message today isn't meant to be some nice encouragement delegation, and team building, although those are some great ways that we often experience God's provision. Rather, the point here is that God is our ever-present and all-powerful deliverer who helps us with each trial, each attack, and each burden if we let him. Remember, we are weak, but he is strong. Isaiah 40.31 says that They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God helped Moses and the Israelites in both miraculous and in ordinary ways. Sometimes God intervened with miraculous victory. And sometimes he provided help through ordinary people lending a hand through qualified leaders ready to serve, and through a timely word of good counsel from a trusted friend. Moses was blessed with Aaron and Hur and Joshua to help him, Jethro for good counsel, and a sizable team of qualified judges. But ultimately, God is the one who provides our help. The name of Moses' second son, Eliezer, means God is help. And it serves as both a memorial of past deliverance and a reminder of present dependence on God. Our help 
comes from the Lord. Placing our trust anywhere else is misguided. It's only in Jesus that we can be assured of eternal security, and only Jesus can take the burden of our sin and intercede for us and provide all that we need each day. Jesus has fulfilled the burden of God's law for us. In Jesus alone, we can breathe the abundant life, confident in his power, his presence, and his provision. Jesus says in Matthew 11:28 and 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you face a difficult challenge today? God knows our weakness. God's power is displayed in our weakness. We are weak, but he is strong. I've already started singing that song to my granddaughter. God's power in Israel's weakness enabled them to defeat Amalek. The message of the gospel is that we can't do it on our own strength. And we don't have to. God desires that we bring our needs to him and that we live in dependent relationship with him. He desires that we listen to and obey him and he provides for us. How easily we take our eyes off our deliverer and provider. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus as your savior, deliverer, and provider, and you'd like to know more, please speak to one of us on the leadership team today, and we'd be happy to talk with you. And to all of us, are there ways in which we're still trusting in ourselves, in our own strength, in our own solutions today, rather than looking to the Lord? In Jeremiah 17, 5 and 7, it says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. But it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And is there some good counsel that God has made available to us that we might be ignoring? Or are there some resources that God has provided to us that we are neglecting? Are there responsibilities that perhaps we might ought to step back from? Or perhaps an opportunity where we ought to step forward and help relieve someone else's burden. Ask the Lord if there's anything that he would reveal to us today in this regard. Let's pray. Lord, the victory belongs to you today and every day. You are the ruler, king, righteous judge, our perfect high priest and intercessor forever. You alone are our deliverer. We are weak, but you are strong. Help us to trust in you and not in ourselves. You provide all that we need. Teach us to know your word, to seek your wisdom, to listen to your voice. Show us how we can best love you and love others as your children and as your people. And give us willing hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.